Now tell me, what's my name? Serial killer, serial Good morning, and welcome to episode 783 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus, presented by the Play Index at BaseballReference.com. I'm Ben Lindbergh of 538, joined by Sam Miller, Baseball Prospectus. Hello. Hello. Does it surprise you that MailChimp still sponsors Serial Season 2? I think that there's probably some extra benefit to them. Hometown discount? Hometown no, sponsored? No, it's not so much that. It's just that, I don't know, it's like they're a character in the show in such a way that I'm not sure a new sponsor would get that. Do you think that goes both ways? That it, no. there's value to cereal in I, having MailChimp? I don't. No, I don't no, think that. I don't I, either. <laughs> I think that it goes. it's sort of like the Friedman question, which is when Friedman has been your GM for 10 years or whatever his position is uh, when he leaves, have you soaked up? all the benefit you can get from him and now it's better to bring in you know another gm who can bring a different perspective does he essentially leave all that value so like does mailchimp still get that or is mailchimp now locked into pop culture consciousness forever and no longer needs to spend a dime they're going to be like they're going to be cashing syndication checks on serial uh mailchimp associations for you know 35 you're like like vh1's i love the the teens 30 years from now there will be <laughs> some guy doing a some a guy doing a male impression. impression exactly and yeah. so maybe there's no need to keep on going to that well for them but i don't know not surprised yeah i'm surprised because they got a a sweet deal on season one, obviously, because no one expected it to be as popular as it was. And I think they paid $6,000 an episode, which I guess is what people pay for a podcast that is expected to have a six-figure audience, maybe a low six-figure audience, as opposed to the seven-figure audience that it did have. So I'm sort of surprised that coming into this year with no underestimation of the audience, that they would not be outbid by someone bigger. Uh-huh. Yeah. I'm going to do a serial-style investigation of why they decided to sponsor serial again. Yeah. No, you're uh, you're right about that. Yeah. All right. But, well, as a podcast that probably doesn't get... Well, for us, I mean, if we hit it, if we blew up, we would still exactly. use the Baseball Reference Play Index. Just right. Because we like the Play Index. Exactly. <laughs> like, we, we, are, we will fight every possible sponsor that comes along <laughs> and uh so yeah it, it is maybe they i don't, I don't know, know if they have the same loyalty <laughs> i don't know a, to the uh mass mailer exactly. <laughs> <laughs> really they do businesses reach clients via email right hey i have a question oh okay go ahead i wonder what year since 2003 you think the highest percentage of active GMs had read Moneyball. Huh. So you're asking if you if I think it's gone down at any point, or is it just well, a steady I climb? I don't I don't know what is the I'm asking what the trajectory is. It could be a steady decline as the book is no longer you know in airports, or it could be a steady incline because you're hiring people who are raised, or there could have been a parabola. I I don't know. Like like first, let me ask you. A question to, I guess, to start by answering it, you just have to think how many of the 30 do you think active right now have read it? I would say 25. And five of them figured they didn't have to because they've seen the movie or they've read about it. We're at the point where GM ages line up with people who read the book and then wanted to get into baseball, right? Like Farhan 
Zaidi oh, yeah, read the no, book and then he absolutely. sent the resume to the A's yeah. and now he works in baseball. That's absolutely true, but it, it's also the it's also the case that some people just don't read books. Like some smart people just don't read books. Like that is not how they choose to be smart. That's true. I would think that it has not declined from its peak. I would say it's still at its peak. Okay. So twenty five and how many do you think had read it by two thousand four? Fourteen. Okay. That actually seems I think yeah, I I might guess that that's high. I might say like nine in 2014, and I think I agree that it is it is still climbing, not because people are reading it, not because they're reading it now, but because, right, people are in the game who read it back when they had free time. Is it now peaking, though? Will it decline? When will it decline? It will at some point. I mean, I, yeah, there's going to be a point at which you won't have to have read it because it's just so out of date or it's so in the culture. I mean, it could still teach you something, I think, at any point in the future, but I would guess that the peak will, it will be off its peak in, say, 10 years. Okay. All right. So you think that it might get up to like 28 or 29? No, I think it's peaked, but I think it'll stay at that peak. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I was thinking yesterday that I kind of have basketball podcast envy right now. I kind of wish we could talk about basketball. There's a lot of interesting stuff happening in basketball. Maybe it's just because there's no actual baseball going on. But wouldn't it be fun to talk about the Warriors and the Lakers and Kobe and Steph Curry and the Sixers? Yeah. Do you sound like things we would enjoy talking about? Is it conceivable that we're like the cooks who've been in the kitchen all day and don't smell the wonderful food anymore when it comes to baseball? (laughs) Is it? Well, maybe. But I was thinking it's because there are no extreme teams like that in baseball right now and i kind of miss it there's no team that's like threatening to set records for how good it is and there's no team that loses every day because i mean a few years ago there were the astros there were the cubs they were rebuilding teams and now they have rebuilt and there are other teams that are rebuilding but i don't think they're going to bottom out as low as the sixers or the lakers are in their sport so yeah, we I mean, there's... we talked we talked a lot about that though. I got really tired of talking about it. Yeah, yeah. I wouldn't necessarily want to talk about the Sixers that much because it's the same story really as the Astros. But the Lakers are losing in a really interesting way. Ba- uh, Bot Stove, by the way, just eight seconds ago tweeted the Giants finally read Moneyball. <laughs> okay, <laughs> which 26. is weird. That's really weird timing. Yeah, well, Bot Stove tweets that a lot. I think. That's one of its stock phrases. Oh, is it? Yeah. But yeah, because there are no extreme, there are no, like, it's parody. I mean, we've talked about that. And it's probably a good thing for baseball that there are no totally dominant teams that win every day and there are no 50 win teams. That's probably a good thing. But I kind of miss the extremes. I don't know. I. To be fair, I have not watched a single second of basketball. This well, year. the name. <laughs> I've just, let's just, I've so consumed can we, these stories through Hang Up and Listen and the podcast yeah. and Five Thirty Eight and everything else. So I well, that's what feel I mean. Like I know yeah. it. But. That's what I mean by that we're not. Yeah, we're not in the kitchen for basketball. It right. is really interesting. I um, I mean, this is because I'm. I like to walk, and because the Warriors are on the radio where I am, and because I'm a you know pathetic front runner, bandwagon fan when it comes to non baseball sports. I have been listening to every basketball game, every Warriors game this year, at least for the last like 15, and so it is the first time I've been exposed to this sport in a very long time. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, you're right; it is, it does seem like an interesting time. But so the things you named, you you have the Sixers, which was the Astros, and we right. talked a lot about the Astros. You have Kobe which was Jeter, 
and we talked a lot about Jeter. Yeah, yeah. I guess that's equivalent. Kobe is. We don't have a. We don't have a Warriors. I will grant we don't you that have we a don't. Warriors, have, no. Not only. Not only do we not have a team that's that dominant, but a team that is that aesthetically pleasing. A team right. that is that universal. What is? I guess the equivalent to to the Warriors would be maybe Bryce Harper season or mm. I mean it, like Pedro was the Warriors of baseball probably because. He was not only dominant beyond anything that anybody had ever done before, but in a completely pleasing and non-morally ambiguous way. Mm -hmm. And so like Bonds was not quite that because it was neither of those things. It was arguably not aesthetically pleasing and it was morally ambiguous. And there is no team equivalent. The what the best the best team in our lifetime is, would you say the 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 114 win Yankees or would you say the second round knockout Mariners? I'd probably say the Yankees. Yeah, and uh, not anything remotely like what the Warriors are doing. You just no. can't do it. No, you it, can't you really can't do, do it. it in baseball. Yeah. No, but, I mean, relative to what the typical team did, it was similar. Yeah, you're right. 11 matches for Moneyball going back to November 20th. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> on uh, Actually, no, six. <laughs> Expos have found Moneyball 2.0. <laughs> Uh, yeah, all right. Fine. Yeah. Not that not that eerie. No. All right. Um, one uh, basketball-related and baseball-related thing, when we talked about the Derek Jeter question, the Derek Jeter jersey question, at what year would Derek Jeter jerseys not be, what did we say, the majority of jerseys in Yankee Stadium or the most common the most, jersey? The most, most common the most jersey. Common, yeah. yeah, so Darren Ravel tweeted something yesterday about the only jerseys that have sold better than Porzingis over the last month. Curry, Kobe, LeBron. Wait, 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 wait. Better than who? Porzingis. I have no idea who that is. (laughs) Okay, maybe we shouldn't do a basketball podcast then. We're not ready. What is Porzingis? He's he's the the Knicks guy, you know, the the tall Knicks guy, European Knicks guy who everyone loves. Never heard of him. Okay. (laughs) Well, I've heard of him, even though I haven't watched a single second of basketball. Not even changing channels accidentally maybe like one of those autoplay ads when you go to espn.com and you see some highlights inadvertently i might have seen some basketball so anyway the only jerseys that have sold better than his over the last month curry kobe lebron durant michael jordan michael kobe, jordan still kobe. in the top five jersey sales i'm surprised he's not number one really well, I mean, for I'm surprised he's not number one, not just because... See, the thing about Jordan is not just that he is... I mean, it, it, he's a billion times better than Jeter. So not only is he, you know, the best player in the sport, but he is... He exists like Star Wars as a marketing, as a merchandise delivery system. I mean, that is... He, he, is, he has lines that he puts out for people to line up and buy. It is not that he's simply an athlete. He is, he is merchandise. He is merchandise. That is why he exists. Yeah. And so that people are still buying Jordan's stuff. Well, I mean shoes, yes. Yeah, but, but why not why not jerseys as well? I mean, why not? Jordan Jordan is a is a brand name. Yeah, right. Jeter's a pretty big brand name. No no Jeter has a brand, but Jordan is literally a brand name. Like he is lit is lit like you bought Jordan's. Like it's yeah. literally a brand. It's like going, I bought Cheerios. Yeah. Right. If you bought Jeter's, I don't know what that would mean. That could mean well, it's, yeah. a few things. Yeah, okay. So I won't adjust my, my Jeter estimate based on the Jordan jersey sales. It's actually really interesting that 
that none of the others are retired. I mean, that seems like maybe re- more relevant to the Jeter that there's no, you know, Shaq jersey that's being yeah. that's at the top or no no bird jersey or no johnson jersey basketball is kind of i mean it's a star league there aren't as many players there's they're higher profile players and so it doesn't surprise me that current players would be on that list i'm i'm impressed by jordan still being there another thing related to an email answer we had uh, on the last show when we talked about whether Sandy Koufax not starting against the Giants for a few years and how you could possibly arrange rotations to have guys face certain teams or not face certain teams. And we concluded that there probably wasn't all that much flexibility because of the way rotations are arranged these days. So uh, Craig Goldstein reminded me that in June, the Orioles did this sort of with Wei-Yin Chen. They optioned him to high A the day after he pitched. And they called up Chris Parmalee because they wanted to see Chris Parmalee and they didn't want Chen to pitch against the Blue Jays because the Blue Jays kill lefties and he hasn't pitched well against the Blue Jays. So they skipped Chen's start and he came back and, and made a start against the Indians a, a few days after that. But doesn't he have to doesn't he have to stay down there ten days? Well he had an option and he did stay down. They skipped a start of his, so he made a start, and then they optioned him, and then they skipped a start, and then he came back. So I guess he came back June 26th, so I think it was maybe the minimum. So anyway, that was an example of a team doing this, and Chen was very upset that they did this. Oh, really? Yeah, he, really? He, yeah, and I remember this when Craig reminded me. He He went on Facebook, and he went on Twitter, and he tweeted, I am in excellent physical shape. I feel great, and I am ready for my next start. I just pitched eight innings of shutout baseball. I am disappointed my routine is being interrupted. I will continue to work hard and do my best to perform. Thank you for all the support. So he was not happy, and his agent, who happened to be Scott Boris, called the decision grossly irregular. So he got involved, and everyone was upset about this. So that's the the fallout from doing this thing. Uh, If you are a player, you do kind of want the club to waste its options that they have on you like that it probably will never matter for chen yeah but if you could if your club wants to waste a option to skip one start that is probably a net gain for your career Mm -hmm. again probably doesn't matter for chen but for many players it would and it even theoretically could for chen someday but probably not Mm -hmm. so he gets paid either way Mm -hmm. uh i assume it's an easy enough did they did they actually relocate him they didn't relocate him right like he stayed in the... no i don't think he went to high a and so as long as they keep giving him the per diem and as long as his there's no real way it would affect his i think your service time counts if you're down for let fewer than 20 days or maybe that's only for rookie of the year voting but for rookie of the year eligibility i think you have to be down 20 days before uh, or else it counts for your major league service time so well, he's, if that's the case yeah he's a free agent so yeah. maybe it impacts him in that he gets one fewer start to impress people or his innings total right. is lower or whatever. No, right. But I mean, if they just skipped him and didn't do the the, the paperwork, would he have still been mad? Because that happens. Yeah, maybe, maybe not. Maybe it's embarrassment of being option. I mean, I assume he understands that mm-hmm. it's just a paperwork thing. I don't, yeah, I don't know. Maybe it's, maybe it is insulting that a guy who leads the team in ERA uh, and is a uh, 
a established major leaguer with four good years under his belt would be skipped to avoid a right-handed lineup. Mm-hmm. That's probably it. Probably, probably, maybe we wouldn't have heard about it if not for the novelty of the of the paperwork. Yeah, but maybe he would have been exactly as a, as upset. Uh-huh. All right, so just something on the Astros Phillies trade. Ken Giles goes to the Astros. Astros finally get their dominant closer that they've been wanting to get for a while now. It was a, uh, I guess it was a four for one, which is something we talked about when we talked about fan trades. Often four for one trades are crazy things that fans come up with, but in this case, there were prospects. So the Astros gave up Vincent Velasquez and Derek Fisher and Brett Oberholzer and Thomas Eshelman. I guess two things. This doesn't fit with what we were talking about the other day about teams paying for elite relievers when they already have an elite reliever because the Astros had a good bullpen most of the year, but they never had a Ken Giles type reliever. They had guys like Will Harris and Tony Sipp and Pat Neshek and guys who were good, but not overpowering. So now they got the overpowering guy. But does this package that the Phillies got back kind of go in the same trend toward Royals influenced bullpen additions? Does this seem well, like, like this is yeah. like this is giving up a starter, a promising starter who started pretty effectively in the majors this year for a bullpen guy? Like if uh, this is like the the sabermetric mantra would be like you know you always want the starter over the reliever, and this is going for the reliever over the starter, and obviously they're not exactly the same. Yeah, I I think that it basically is part of that same discussion. It's part of this, at least part of this, maybe, well, it's part of the discussion, yeah. Because five years ago, if I had told you this trade was going to happen, that some team was going to trade a, what is Velasquez, a top, basically a top 50 prospect? I think he doesn't have prospect stats anymore, but. Coming into last year, he was 75th, 75th BP, and then improved his, his stock, I would say. So, so. I don't I don't know the I mean we don't really know other than Velasquez you and I don't really know that much and I guess Oberholzer but we don't know that much about the guys involved so it's hard to say exactly how big a package this is but if we assume this is a big package if we assume that that the Phillies got a lot I mean given what teams were asking for for Chapman and given what Kimbrel brought back and given that Giles has a lot more service time uh, or a lot uh, less service time and and will be cheap and is you know basically been equally as dominant I will just assume that they got a big package okay this is a big package stated and accepted okay so if you'd known five years ago that some team had traded a big package for a closer then yeah you would have guessed that it was a non stat head team you wouldn't you certainly wouldn't have guessed that it was perhaps the team on the vanguard of stat head commitment mm-hmm. and so uh in the sense that yes this is a team paying a large price for a closer a team that has certainly read moneyball <laughs> and that at the time that they read moneyball would have taken the lesson that you should not pay big prices for closers then uh, yes it fits that trend and i don't think that this is new we've known for at least all offseason, the Astros were ready to go spend a lot on a closer, not not cash money, but spend a lot uh, of talent right. to get one of these one of these three three or four names that we were hearing. I think they were linked to Andrew Miller. I think they were linked to Chapman at least at the deadline, and they obviously were linked to Giles. And I think they were linked to maybe Kimbrel at the deadline too, and uh, maybe not. And so uh, this is not new information about the Astros, uh, how the Astros value this particular set of skills. 
Uh-huh. Uh, it is it is new uh, relative to five years ago, though, and maybe when did this start? When did we start seeing hmm. a? I don't know because we. I mean, we were talking about relievers not making crazy money anymore, like earlier this offseason, weren't we? Like when we talked about Craig Kimbrell, we talked about. Kimbrel contracts for closers and how that didn't seem to be as common anymore. Yeah. We talked about, we speculated that closers are no longer overpriced Mm -hmm. and that if they're no longer overpriced, then it makes uh, less sense to stay away from them as a uh, philosophical matter. Yeah. But like, can you, what, it's hard to know, like it's, it's hard to separate teams into stat head and not stat head, but I guess there's, uh, well, let's see. So DePoto is maybe the uh, has lately been the the biggest proponent of not paying big money for relievers. When he went into to Anaheim, he made a big deal about saying that he didn't think that was the right way to spend money. He had all sorts of quotes about how he was not going to be giving Papelbon money to Papelbon or anybody else, and stuck to that. And it went terribly uh, because Ryan Madsen uh, never got good, never got healthy. Sean Burnett uh, broke right away. Frieri dissolved and uh there was one other i forget and he he didn't completely uh turn his back on that but they did give uh houston street was the big acquisition at the deadline in 2014 and a fair amount given up there in as much as the angels actually had a fair amount of anything in their system to give up uh and so i consider that to be a, a little bit of a concession to the notion of paying for a closer. Uh, and so then when he goes to Seattle, he trades Carson Smith, which by trading a guy, you're essentially saying uh, trading a guy is the flip side of not paying for the guy, right? You're cashing him out. You're saying that you would rather have the resources that that player is worth or would make uh, than that guy himself. On the other hand, he went and got uh, Joaquin Benoit, yeah. who is a uh, you know notable expense. So anyway, let's just say that as of two, three years ago, it was still common for the GM who was broadcasting his stat credentials to stay away from the top of the market. Mm-hmm. Now, what are the exceptions since then? I wouldn't consider the Astros of last offseason to be an exception. They went nope. mid-market, which is the point. Yeah, they went for uh, Luke Gregerson. And, yeah, so that's... I, w- I wouldn't quite consider the Yankees to be an exception because the Yankees always have their own budget. Mm-hmm. Uh Certainly wouldn't. Well, the uh, let's see. I wait. I might have one. Certainly wouldn't consider the Rays to be so. They have sort of sat around that seven million dollar max for their closers when they've had to get one, mm-hmm. which is probably. I think getting. I think getting Grant Balfour and getting uh, Rafael Soriano was notable at the time because it was not paying a guy the minimum, uh, and so that was notable. That was more than I. That was maybe a step toward this direction, but still not upper end. But of course, the Rays aren't going to get the upper end anything anywhere, no matter what. So maybe this is, let's see, the Red Sox were getting Uahara as like a one-year reclamation guy. What other teams? Give me some other teams. The Indians didn't. The Blue Jays haven't. So those are those are the main stat head teams, right? And then the finally, but here's the one that I thought of a couple seconds ago. But I think the moment where this changed probably in my head or in our heads was when Billy Bean traded for Jim Johnson. Uh, yeah. Because Jim Johnson was making like $11 million in ARB or was about to. And that was seen as a very large expense for the A's, a very uncharacteristic expense for the A's, a very out of character expense for the A's. And we all, because it's the A's, because it's a Billy Bean move, 
instead of mocking it like we would Dave Stewart, uh, we very carefully studied it and squinted at it and four hours later wrote our pieces saying, I understand it. And <laughs> so we probably all, I think probably that day, a lot of our, our positions softened. Yeah, that's a, that's as good a time as any, although that worked out pretty terribly. <laughs> oh, horribly. Just the worst. Just the absolute worst. Yeah. <laughs> at least they didn't trade. At least they traded Jameel Weeks and not Josh Donaldson for it. <laughs> right. All right. So Ken Giles is, is great at relieving and he's young and he's under team control and, and all these other things. So uh, he is not, it's not like an example of paying for saves or something like, I mean, he did get saves, but he is, he's awesome. So my question is, let's say over the life of the their their pre free agency contracts. So Giles, wait, wait, can I can I interrupt real quick? I, yeah. I think we're gonna. So uh, you're not paying for saves for Ken Giles, but you obviously are paying for the future saves. Is there a distinction anymore? Do you think there's any significant distinction between the guy who has saves and the guy who obviously is being brought in to get saves? Do we pay closer prices for closer quality now, regardless of whether there's a a, a capital P before proven? I think so. Okay. Oh, well, right. yeah. I, well, I mean, if he hadn't saved at all, if he hadn't been a closer at all for the Phillies, or if Carson Smith hadn't been a closer at all, hadn't gotten any saves, would would they command the same price? I don't know. I mean, I guess maybe there's on some teams there would probably still be some discount. I think. What do you think about? Does Darren O'Day's contract reflect a non-proven closer discount, or is four and thirty-one for O'Day what he would get if he had forty-six saves last year? I think he would get more. I'm well. I'm not. I'm not sure how what combination of like the fact that it's O'Day and he doesn't throw a hundred, or he's he's not the typical closer looking pitcher, which is maybe why he's never been a closer. So I'm not sure. I mean, no one's no one's paying him to be a closer, right? The Orioles are. They haven't used him as a closer, and they're not going to. I would think so. That's still probably reflects some some judgment on his his skills his value okay all right go ahead sorry to interrupt well so my question is giles is great we both agree giles is great if you put vincent velasquez in the bullpen and he did spend some time in the bullpen last year and there's a possibility he might end up in the bullpen because he has had injury issues and you know it doesn't have a very deep repertoire throws lots of fastballs etc but he's, you know, he threw, he averaged over 95, even though he spent most of the season in the rotation. If you put Velasquez in the bullpen, what percentage of Giles would he be, do you think? Over, I mean, Giles is signed through 2020 and Velasquez is signed through 2021. So if you just, if you just said, okay, Velasquez is a reliever now, he's going to be a reliever between now and when Giles is a free agent, how much more value would you get out of Giles, do you think? Because we've seen so many starters, not even good starters, go to the bullpen and be good relievers. And he seems to have the stuff to be a good bullpen guy. And I just wonder if you committed to him as a reliever, what percentage of Giles he would be over the next several years. It's uh, like it's it's funny because if you were writing the analysis of this trade, you and you're sitting there in your room trying to think of an angle, you could imagine thinking this exact thought and then rushing to the baseball reference page to see how he did as a reliever and, I seeing, did that. The, <laughs> and seeing the awful reliever splits and going, ah, yeah. can't, now I can't write it. Yep. 
because yeah. uh, he was he was uh, not he was not really better as a reliever than as a starter, mm-hmm. right? Which doesn't necessarily mean anything. He it might take a minute uh-huh. before you figure out that oh you can do different things. Uh, and he was throwing multi inning stuff yeah. uh, in some instances, and he did strike out more yeah. uh, batters. And so it's not you know it's not a it's like it doesn't discredit your your question at all mm-hmm. it only makes it harder to write that piece <laughs> yes um i ben it's so i mean look <laughs> it's the thing is that like again like we talked about two days ago ken giles was so bad two days ago uh two days ago two years ago yeah and like he was so bad he had an era of six in high a and then the next year he had like the third best relief ERA of all time. And so there's not a great one-to-one relationship between what you were doing two years ago and how good a reliever you are. Uh-huh. Right. That's that's the devil of the whole thing, right? Like, yeah. it's really hard to know. So like, you know, cl- clearly if you asked this question two years ago mm-hmm. and said, who's going to be the better reliever? Well, Velasquez is. Giles yeah. wouldn't even make the majors, probably. Right. But uh, you know you're you're saying let's let's first let's just let's just say, ask two simple questions, okay? Given what Ken Giles has done over the last two years in 116 innings, the 116 innings that you've known his name, what do you anticipate he will do over the next three years? Uh, how many innings? And give me an ERA, and just that, just that, just give me those two things. Okay. Well, you don't even need to give me any. It's just uh, we're assuming that both stay healthy, okay? All right. All yeah. right, so now give me an ERA over the next three years as a reliever. It's it's one five six for his career. It's a one eight two FIP. It's twelve strikeouts per nine. It's three walks per nine. It's a good ground ball rate. Yeah, is it a good ground ball rate or is it just a good home run rate? It might just be a good home run rate. Yeah, it's an okay ground ball rate. Okay. Um, yeah, I well, I think uh, offense might be trending up again, which would sort of change things, right? The second half was was pretty high offense. Compared to the last couple of seasons as a whole, but I'll say uh, two point seven. Two point seven. Wow. Yeah. You're you're doubling his ERA almost. Yeah, close. Okay. What? Let me uh, let me ask to to sort of calibrate this engine. What would you say Wade Davis's will be? Uh, Wade Davis uh, the, is basically the one guy. He and Batantes are basically the the, the two guys who have been able to uh to you know match or better giles over the last two years in certain aspects so mm-hmm. davis basically has an area of one over the last two years what will his be 2.2 okay and then uh Batances over the last two years uh 1.45 what will his be i'll say uh i'll say about davis about the same same as davis that's interesting i basically that- wouldn't i don't think i would really project any reliever to have a sub two over a three-year period or whatever we're talking about uh okay i think uh last year we talked about how craig kimbrell's pagoda projections were insane because we had him projected for like a 1.4 or something which was like a run better than anybody else so i don't think you're wrong but yeah i um, mean even davis and and Betances had fips that were well over two even though they had their one something eras or one era all right so uh, low twos is basically your max, and you're putting Giles at worse than the max. Yes. Okay. And so then last question. Well, I'll answer those before. I will say uh, Davis 185, Batances uh, uh, 2, 
2.2. I'll stay, I'm with you on Betances and Giles 2.3. Okay. All right. Now, do Velasquez. <laughs> Huge error bars around this. I'll say about, gosh, I mean, he had like a 3.46 FIP as a guy who started most of his innings. And he, he has the fastball and he has the prospect value. He has all of that. So I'll say uh, 3, 2.95. <laughs> all right. I, uh, yeah, I I would say, I mean, what is he, uh, I'm trying to think of a comp of a of a of a top 50-ish prospect yeah. which I think uh, Velasquez was top 75 preseason but I think he was higher by the time he got called up. I think if we were yeah. to do this now I think Velasquez would be higher than top 50 if he had eligibility. Yes. Uh he would be higher than top. 50. So like Trevor Rosenthal was that and Carlos Martinez was that. Uh they both were really great relievers. Yeah. And it's I'm trying to think of one who wasn't. Like who just, like a top starting pitching prospect who came up as a reliever and just sucked. Now, some come up as starters and suck, and then by the time they go into relief, they still don't, they're still not good. Mm-hmm. But you know, you don't know why. But yeah, is there a top prospect who came up and had like a 4.4 ERA as a reliever? Nothing comes to mind. I mean, it doesn't happen that often that a top starting pitching prospect, I mean, it, it happens for like a David Price period where it's just the playoffs or September or something. But like Chris Sale was a great yeah, reliever. Sure. Of course, Chris Sale's a superstar. Yeah. Neftali Feliz was a great reliever until mm-hmm. you know he stopped being that. I'm looking at the top hundred of 2013, and I'm going to see who has come up uh, as a reliever. So Kevin Gossman hasn't been dominant, but he's been used so weirdly <laughs> right. that it's hard to, <laughs> to even know what he is or how and he they're has, trying to I mean, use he's him. looked dominant as a reliever at times oh okay so aaron sanchez we have an aaron sanchez he was a reliever for a year right he's been awesome as a reliever Uh, as a reliever so there's him there's carlos martinez at number 43 who was who was you know very good there's trevor rosenthal at 45 by the way sanchez was 32 so these aren't top 10 guys these are guys that are around over last guys so we've named three arotis viscaino uh well he got hurt that's right. I mean, are we not? Are we taking a point off for that, or is that just an injury thing? Yeah, let's I, call it an injury thing. Yeah, I don't want demerit for that. No, I guess. Okay, so J.R. Graham counts against us. Okay, well, he was sixty-three two years ago, and then he had he, he debuted this year, used almost entirely as a reliever, although as kind of a two-inning guy. Mm-hmm. Swing, almost a swingman at times, and he wasn't very good at all. Mm-hmm. There's him. I think that's pretty much it for guys who have been used as relievers in the majors. Yeah, Tony Singrani. He was 91. Yeah, I mean he was well. Okay, he he was made a reliever after he struggled as a starter, right? Yeah, yeah, kind of. If you want to call it struggling, and Tony Singrani's kind of a weird dude. Yeah. It's not he's not a comp for anything. J.R. Graham, like he's a twin. Like he doesn't strike people out. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I don't know. <laughs> Maybe it was weird to have him ranked there. I don't know. All right, but we basically <laughs> anyway. look, we named I named five guys, three of them were dominant, one of them was bad, and then one of them is Singrani, who is a very odd case, but admittedly was also very bad as a reliever this year. So I will say, uh, yeah, I'll say like, uh, like uh, 
I, that's the thing. Like Velasquez, two, two eight, two eight five. Yeah, Velasquez didn't disappoint really. I mean, he didn't. He. It's not like you would be moving him to the bullpen because he showed he couldn't start or something like Singrani or like he just didn't have enough pitches or something. So if you just take a guy who is actually an effective starter and put him in there, that changes things a little relative to some other people we talked about. But yeah, okay. So so I'm you saying, you have I'm him half a run eight, worse than yeah. Giles. I am, but I have him almost identical to what you have, Giles. Yes. And I don't trust my assessment of Giles any more than I trust yours. Uh-huh. <laughs> okay, so but but uh, yes, I think that he is unlikely. I think that Giles as a has established himself as a top five reliever at the moment, which doesn't promise anything, but at the moment, and I would not bet on a non top five reliever. Uh, on any non-top five reliever to be a top five reliever. No top, even even an ace? I mean, look, yeah. Like if <laughs> Syndergaard were a reliever okay. right now, but yeah. but yeah, okay. realistically. All right. Yeah, I mean, I don't really fault the Astros for making the move, but I wouldn't be surprised if if you were to do that. And Velasquez obviously has the, the upside of being a good starter, which Giles does not have. But if you were to put them in the same role, I would guess that the gap wouldn't be as huge. I wonder, seems. yeah, I wonder if part of this is just that you don't think he's going to be a great starter and you don't want to deal with the headache of, <laughs> of, because uh, like, I don't know, maybe, maybe it's a pain to, to bring him in and say, well, if they bring him in and say, we don't think you're going to be a starter, we want you to be a reliever then, and he doesn't want to do that. And maybe the team doesn't like this. And maybe you start having to have a lot of conversations. And if you don't do that, if you say, all right, we'll give him a chance. Well, now you've got to give him a year to maybe fail and, and maybe get hurt and maybe lose confidence and maybe cost you a division. And so maybe it's just a a headache to Uh convert a guy Uh (laughs) like for soft reasons. Yeah, maybe. Whereas if you bring in Giles, every Astro in the clubhouse except Luke Gregerson is stoked <laughs> right. right now. Like every single one is like, we finally got the guy. Sorry, Luke. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but we did. <laughs> yeah. Right. Okay. Last thing. It sounds like Jason Hayward is getting close to signing. Did you read the Tom Berducci article about Jason Hayward? <laughs> about Jason Hayward? No. Okay. So he... Basically, uh, he wandered around the winter meetings and he talked to people and he asked them about their uncertainty level or their doubts about Hayward or what they would pay Hayward. And as he mentions, Hayward is a, he would be an outlier if he signs a hundred million contract, which obviously he will. He'll become the first outfielder to do so without scoring or driving in a hundred runs in his career. And the only people who have done that in the past are non-outfielders Elvis Andrus and Joe Maurer and Kyle Seeger. Obviously positions where people think about defense more than they do for a corner outfielder. And there are lots of quotes. He talked to managers and, uh, you know, quotes from guys saying he's not a middle-of-the-order hitter, etc., etc. And we talk about Hayward's war a lot. Everyone just sort of you know, like if uh, if someone comes out and says, oh, he's he's not a guy, he's not a run producer or whatever, then the sabermetric people will point to his war and his war ranks among the best in baseball over his career over the last few years. On the other hand, if you were a GM, like it's easy for us to say that he has the fifth highest war through his age 25 season, only A-Rod and Trout and 
Andrew Jones and Albert Pujols are ahead of him or, you know, his war over the past few years and only a few guys are better. Trout, Josh Donaldson, Paul Goldschmidt, Adrian Beltre, only guys ahead of Hayward over the last few years. But if you were a GM, what discount do you think you would apply to your contract offer to Hayward because his defense makes up a large proportion of his war? And I'm I'm assuming that the defense that I have access, the defensive uh, metrics I have access to are... I would, yeah, well, let's say they... They agree, they, they agree. and I trust them. Yeah, well, I wonder. I, I don't know. If you, I mean, if you trust them as much as, like, offensive stats or something, then this question doesn't really make any sense. So I'm assuming that you, well, you, you might, still don't yeah. trust them as much as It, it might still, no, it might still make sense because you might think that that defense is going to age well, worse. Well, yeah, yeah. And you might think that, I don't know, you might conceivably think that defense, uh, individual defense is overvalued by these metrics generally because the individual is part of a system in which uh, maybe some of the deficiencies of one player can be covered up, or maybe some of the benefits of another player might be uh, overlapping. So you could you could conceivably devalue it anyway, just mm-hmm. as a basic war model. So I've got, I mean, look, we know what they have access to. We know they have access to yeah. StatCast. Over the past and- few, three years, by the way, his, his defensive war is 42%, 42.5% of his overall war. So almost half of his value is defense. There's also the fact that maybe whether or not I would devalue that, maybe if the market does, I can still convince him to devalue it. I mean, it partly depends on how much leverage the guy who's selling has. So I would say that if I were going to give, if, if there was a play, if Paul Goldschmidt and Hayward, who are basically the same war wise for war wise, yeah, just about yeah. If if those two guys were available to me, uh, then I would say that I would give. <sighs> it's really scary to think about when you have a two hundred million dollar contract riding on. It's very easy to say on a podcast or write in a blog post that you would pay this guy like his war suggests he should be paid but then if we're if we're talking about see the thing about Hayward is that he is a lot of times when a guy has really good defense at you know at his age at 25 26 27 that mm-hmm. that range usually he's playing a premium position and yeah, so you right, can say right. well the defense will slip and I'll just move him down the defensive spectrum but Hayward is a yeah. great defender already down at the bottom of the defensive spectrum and mm-hmm. so you're just losing runs. Whereas he gets worse, you're just losing runs. There's really no, there's no like adjustment you can make. He's already yeah. adjusted. So you mm-hmm. just are just pure run loss yeah. uh, if, as he gets worse. And I don't know if that's actually different, but it feels worse. Whereas if he were a center fielder, you go, ah, we'll move him to right when he gets older. Right. I would say off the top of my head, just off the top of my head, that I, if they have the same war and the mm-hmm. same war projections, and I'm doing this over an eight-year contract, eight years, do you think? Yeah. I would pay Goldschmidt an extra $60 million. So what, what percentage is that? Uh, you know, a, or a quarter, maybe a, like a like 20 to 25%. You'd pay Hayward three, I'd go like three quarters two, of what you would pay someone with his war who had go, a high percentage of that war being offense. Let's say I would give in an in a in a eight year deal, I'd go two forty for Hayward and three hundred for Goldschmidt. Uh-huh. Like I'd I'd try to talk them down. Yeah. But like I would think that both of those would be if I were a team that could afford it, those would be justifiable contracts. Maybe okay. a nine year deal. Maybe it's a nine year deal though. Uh, and if it were a three year deal, 
then I would say uh, like two percent. Huh, I'm mo- okay. I'm mostly I'm mostly applying this penalty okay, beyond so three years. So it's not the uncertainty about whether he actually was that valuable. It's the if uncertainty I have access about whether to, he'll remain that valuable. If I have access to Statcast, it's mostly the remain that valuable. Now mm-hmm. maybe it maybe it's six percent in the in the immediate future. Okay, and mostly kind of mostly for the I do think that we're kind of moving to a model sort of like the I think I think sort of like the NFL model where the individual is subservient to the system in a lot of ways. And you can uh, debate the value of a quarterback because you don't know how much of that is the offensive coordinator, the co- head coach and the scheme and whether you could just put anybody in, you know, whether you could put a lot of different quarterbacks in that system and have his numbers go up. Uh-huh. And so I do sort of feel like the more that shifting comes into play, the more an individual yeah fielder is just less valuable than his individual numbers would suggest or or less less costly than his individual numbers would suggest. I think that 10 years ago, my answer would be different. But I think if I'm looking at the next eight or nine years, uh, I'm looking at this guy as a as a little bit more of a of a cog in a defensive system. Uh-huh. And that I don't necessarily have to pay any individual player to be that cog quite so much. Right. Okay. All right. So interesting contract we'll see where it ends up and we will do emails tomorrow barring another big move that we have to talk about so send us some emails at podcast at baseballprospectus.com you can join our facebook group up over 3200 listeners now talking about baseball at all hours of the day and night facebook.com slash groups slash effectively wild you can rate and review and subscribe to the show on itunes and you can support our sponsor baseball reference play index use the coupon code bp get the discounted price of 30 dollars on a one-year subscription we'll be back tomorrow